All right, then, before we start, a little story. Mm-hmm. I think this comes from Malcolm McDowell. Okay. Who was talking about when they were making A Clockwork Orange. Right. And he told of this <clears throat> incident, whatever you want to call it, where Stanley Kubrick was holding auditions for a non-speaking female role in the film. And McDowell says that Kubrick and, I don't know, his casting director, I suppose, are sitting at a table at one end of the room Hmm. in this big hall and they've got this great big long line of girls in front of them. And as they go down the line, one by one, Kubrick and this other fella ask these girls to lift their shirts up and show them their tits. (laughs) Now, Malcolm McDowell tells this story as an example of Stanley Kubrick's obsessiveness, his madness, his over-enthusiastic attention to detail. But, let me put it this way. If you were making a television series and you had a very short scene in which you had to have a unicorn and you booked a horse and you were supposed to get a white horse that you could put a horn on And, uh, you know, that's how you get your unicorn. Mm -hmm. And on the day of the filming of that scene, when, you know, budgets are tight and time is tight and there's nothing you can do about it whatsoever, Mm -hmm. and the handler's turned up with a brown horse, you'd be pretty miffed, wouldn't you? This sounds familiar. Yeah, mind robber, obviously. So all I'm saying is, Stanley Kubrick wanted a woman... For the scene at the very end of A Clockwork Orange where he shows Alex going back to his old wicked ways and to show Alex going back to his old wicked ways there's just one shot for like a minute or something Hmm. of Alex cavorting with a naked woman. Now, if you're casting this woman just to be the naked woman with whom Alex is cavorting you'd want to know what she looks like naked before you book the actress, pay the fees get her into the studio, have everything booked, cameras and editors and makeup. If she turned up, took her clothes off and was completely wrong for the part, you'd have lost the whole day while you found someone else, wouldn't you? He sounds very thorough. Well, you know, Stanley Kubrick is famous for his thoroughness and a lot of people would Slightly say, pervy as well, but yeah, thorough. Well, I'm not entirely sure it is pervy. Hmm. He shows no sign in any other aspect of his life of being remotely pervy (laughs) and in fact was happily married to the same woman for 40 years before he died with several children and a very loving family home and no sign whatsoever of any kind of abnormality he just wanted to make sure he got the right woman for the part or the right woman's parts (laughs) hi this is mark and welcome to episode 19 of nerdology 19 19 this two weeks too late. Yeah. 17 is my lucky number. Oh, is it? Yeah. Can oh. you not reorder the podcast? Well, I've been asking you to come on for over a year. Just, you know, just I came one... on? Yeah, over a year ago. Well, yeah, fair yeah. enough. I've been kind of wrapped up in other podcasts. Well, yeah. Yeah, there is that other thing. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, if you haven't guessed it by now, my lovely guest today is Mr. J.R. Southall. Hello. Of Starburst magazine. Oh, yes. And of You and Who. Oh, yes. And of the Blue Box podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, what's the subject for tonight, Mark? It's going to be The Muppet Show. Yeah. I mean, no, it's going to be Stanley Kubrick. So, Mark, tell me your experience of Stanley Kubrick. Very limited, I have to admit. Um, I've got 2001 on DVD, which is a pretty stunning film. It took me several watches to try and get my head round it. Question for you. Go on. Concerning 2001, did mm. you see it when you were a kid? No. How old do you think you were when you first saw it? Mm, probably, well, it depends on when you define being a kid or not. Probably oh, yeah. sort of 18 or so, I imagine. Uh, right. Because, you see, my experience of 2001, when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12, mm. it was one of those... Because I was a Doctor Who fan, and when you're a Doctor Who fan, you tend to try and find other things of a similar ilk, right? Yeah. And you don't realise till you're grown up that that doesn't necessarily mean science fiction. Right. So, as a grown-up, my tastes have diverged away from science fiction completely. But mm. as a kid, I just assumed that if I liked Doctor Who, then I should like other kinds of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And of course, 2001 is one of those legendary science fiction films. So as a kid, I watched it, thinking, yeah. oh, this will be a bit like Doctor Who. And... As a kid, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but as a far kid, away from Doctor Who as you can get, I suppose. But as a kid, I loved it because yeah. it had spaceships and spacemen and. Mm. And hominids. Well, quite, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, monkeys throwing bones at each other. Yeah. And it's only a short sequence at the start of the film. Short-ish. See, now in, in today's times, if a director was taking. Say Zack Snyder was going to do his 2001, you'd have some sort of fabulous CGI thing where the mm. bone transforms into a satellite going around the earth whereas give it its due when was it made 68 yes 68 yeah. it came out um even now it stands up really well the model shots are absolutely stunning do you know that one of the influences on the look of that film was doctor who would that be the wheel in space no that would be the dalek master plan no oh. apparently stanley kubrick I mean, obviously, by this point, he was living in England. Mm -hmm. And apparently he... I was going to say emailed, obviously. (laughs) Fly me. He wrote to the Doctor Who production office Mm. and said, I'm making this science fiction film down at Borehamwood or Pinewood or wherever it was. Yeah. And we're trying to do all these different things with special effects. Mm. And we're trying to make it look as realistic as possible. I saw an effect in your show the other day. I'd like to know how you did it. And the scene in question was in episode four of the Daleks Master Plan where mm-hmm. Katarina throws herself out of the airlock. And apparently in the shot, <clears throat> you kind of see her disappearing away from the window out into space. Mm-hmm. Rather like the shot in 42 where the pod comes off and you see yeah. the pod drifting away. Well, apparently yeah. in Dalek's master plan, there's a shot of Katarina drifting away from the spaceship, yeah. rather like that. And Kubrick wanted to know how they did it. Years later, when I found this out, I actually wrote to his widow and said, I know that Stanley Kubrick has a rather extensive film library in his basement. 
there's not even the slightest chance he's got more <laughs> Doctor Who episodes in there, is there? And, and did you wrote, get a response? Yes, she wrote me a nice letter back and said, thanks for writing, and I'm sorry, but no, there's not the, not any Doctor Who down there. Oh, shame. Yeah, it was worth trying. Yeah. These things are always worth trying. Mm-hmm. And you never know. He may have had the whole of the Dalek's Master Plan down there. He strikes me as um, someone who is more of a <clears throat> an auteur rather than necessarily going out to make populist films. Although a lot of his movies have... Populist themes. themes. Yeah, yeah. Do you know... Uh, right, okay. Two things there, and... Both of them go back to his very early career. Hmm. One, yeah, you could say he was an auteur because he was in charge of every aspect and that is pretty much the definition of the auteur or author, of course. Hmm. Uh, But that was only because he didn't have any film training. Hmm. He just kind of, he borrowed money from relatives and, you know, from friends to make his very early films. So he had to learn how to do everything. He taught himself everything. Mm. So because he made these very early films, a few shorts and Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, entirely by himself, yeah. he had to write them, he had to direct them, mm-hmm. he had to be the guy holding the camera, yeah. he had to edit them, he had to source the music and put the music in. He had to... ADR because he was filming without sound, so all the ADR, all the dialogue was recorded in afterwards. Yeah, he had to teach himself all these regimes and learn every aspect of filmmaking thoroughly. So then, when people start paying him to make films because he's used to doing it that way, and because he had a nasty experience on Spartacus, right. but because he's used to doing it that way, he just carries on doing it that way. So that. That's the auteur Mm. aspect. Mm. But the other thing is, and this is actually where I wanted to start, so actually we've kind of found our way there by default almost. Mm. The first film that Kubrick made, which involved other people's money, strangers' money, and which had a proper distribution deal, his first proper film, in other words, Mm -hmm. was The Killing in 1956. Right. So what he did, he went out to the library uh, because he knew after having done Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, which Killer's Kiss did, it was well enough made that after the fact, after it was finished, he was able to sell it to a distributor and get it a limited distribution Mm. in cinemas across America. Yeah. So he knew that his next film after this was going to be something that would play in cinemas and that would have proper financing, professional actors, Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. So he thought, right, what am I going to do? Because his first two films were kind of self-penned things, and Killer's Kiss was very much a sort of Pulp Fiction type of a thing. Mm -hmm. And he kind of, I think, made a sensible decision to do something along similar lines to Killer's Kiss, because he knew he'd had a relative success with that, Mm. in that he'd been able to sell it to a distributor, So he figured, if I do something similar again, then it's going to work. I'm not going to have any problems with it. Well, he didn't foresee what problems he would have. Took himself down to the library, yeah. borrowed a bunch of books out of the Pulp Fiction section. Mm-hmm. And the one that most took his fancy was a book called... I can't remember if it was called The Killing. I don't think it was. <clears throat> you, 
people will have to Google things after this <laughs> podcast if they want to find out. Anyway, found this book that he thought was perfect. Mm-hmm. So, he said, so he sat down and wrote a screenplay for it. Right. And basically what he did was essentially transcribed this short dime novel into script format yeah. with, you know, the, changing the dialogue to the way he liked it, mm-hmm. sort of shortening scenes and everything else that you do when you write a screenplay, wrote yeah. a screenplay from the book and filmed it, thinking, you know, the story worked in the book, it'll work as a film. And then when he gets to the distributors with this film, here's the thing. The book, it's a pulp fiction, it's a dime novel. Yeah. But in order to tell the story, which is a really simple story, mm. in order to tell the story and make it interesting and give it suspense, the author of the book has written it entirely out of sequence. In the same way right. as Reservoir Dogs, for yeah. example, is out of sequence. <clears throat> so the story's splintered into different sections. It tells it's about a robbery, yeah. and it's about the robbers, and it tells the robbery from every different perspective. Yeah going backwards in time and forwards in time throughout the entire film, backwards and forwards. And when you get to the end, you can piece it together. Yeah. So that, for example, if somebody is supposed to meet another guy at the racetrack Mm. and the other guy is late, you'll follow the guy's story who's supposed to meet him up until the point at which he gets to the racetrack and then you backtrack and follow the other guy's story. To find out why he was late. Yeah. But you'll follow it right from the very start of the robbery. Mm-hmm. So you'll have a whole 10 or 15 minute sequence yeah. getting to you to find out. Of course, when he hands this over, everybody's scratching their heads. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know um, the absolute ins and outs of this, but the way I would imagine it played is that he handed it over to the distributor. Distributor said, you don't make films like this <laughs> out of sequence. It's a dime novel. You do it straightforward. Yeah. Do you think it was a case of he was just too far ahead of his time or was it a case of no, it was a, no, just no, a, this is the point. an error on his part? I think the, the point is, when he handed it over, because of the way he shot it, there's mm. no way you could re-edit it back into sequence. Yeah. So they were landed with it and that's what they had to put out. And it was successful. But no, I don't think that it's because he was ahead of his time. Mm. I think it's because he was entirely self-taught. He didn't realise that that's not how you do things. Yeah. So he learned a huge lesson from that. Mm-hmm. And the huge lesson he learned was you don't have to play by other people's rules in order to make a success. Which he famously did in The Shining. Go on, by what? By <laughs> which you mean? Well, from what I gather, the film version is quite different from Stephen King's original yeah. novel. <clears throat> oh, that's later in Kubrick's career mm-hmm. when he was adapting things far more loosely. Mm-hmm. In fact, no, it's odd because he kind of comes and goes over that aspect. The Killing is very straightforward retelling of the novel. Yeah. And Clockwork Orange is almost line of dialogue for line of dialogue, a straightforward mm-hmm. retelling of that novel. Yeah. And then with other things, he would diverge quite a lot. And The Shining, probably a case of, well, this was the thing. Because he'd done the killing yeah. and he'd managed to make a success of something that he'd made a hell of a lot more esoteric than it really should have been. Mm. Because at the time, you know, B-movies that were playing in small cinemas on the edge of town would always be 80 minutes long, very straightforward, mm. very simple to follow. Very basic. Yeah, very, very basic. 
But Stanley Kubrick had taken a dime novel and actually made something highbrow out of it. So it's like celluloid alchemy. Well, yeah, yeah. But the point is, he'd taken something that should have been very lowbrow mm. and made it into something very highbrow mm. just by a process of not pandering to the rules. Yeah. But only because he didn't know the rules. Mm. But the point, therefore, is the lesson he's learned, not just that you don't have to play by the rules, but also that you can take a very basic source material and make something much better of it. Yeah. Because if you look at it, if you're going to take a novel like Great Expectations mm. or War and Peace and turn it into a movie... You're on a hide into nothing, aren't you? Well, you have to lose a lot of weight of what makes the book good, right? Mm. You have to lose a lot of the important stuff. By the which people I mean, who love the book so much. Well, yeah. Who are going to want to go and see it. A lot of the experience that. of reading a book is in subtext, mm. is in what the reader brings to the experience. Yeah. But you can't do that with a film mm. because it's all up there on the screen. So if you take a big novel and fill it it of all the stuff that's not necessary to the plot, mm. then you're going to lose a lot of what makes the book what it is. But if you take a book that's crap <laughs> and add to it to bring to the screen, you're actually going to turn it into something better yeah. than what it is. Mm -hmm. And essentially, from that point forwards, after the killing, essentially, and not always strictly, mm. but that's kind of the way Kubrick did things. He would take books like The Shining, yeah, or um, I think it's The Short Timers by... Hasford, Gustav Hasford, I can't remember. I've got my cheat sheet here that I can't find it. <laughs> <coughs> to make Full Metal Jacket. He didn't yeah. always take bad books yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. And he didn't always take, you know, cheap, crappy, naff books mm. by any stretch of the imagination. But what he would do is take relatively simple books and turn them into something far more complicated by adding to them rather than taking stuff out. Yeah. And you know, it's always been my. It's always been my. Um, I can't remember the word I'm thinking of, but it's always been my assertion yeah. that remakes, per se, adaptations, mm -hmm. and a remake is only an adaptation of a previous film. Remakes aren't a bad thing per se, but, and I've said this on the podcast, and you know exactly yeah. what I'm going to say. Yeah, you don't remake something that's good. Because you're always going to suffer by comparison. Yeah. You remake something that's not very good in order to, you know... Improve on it. Exactly. Mm. And it's the same with adaptations. Yeah. And I've always said that remakes and adaptations are a perfectly valid art form. <laughs> Just as long as you don't do the stupid thing. Yeah. And 90% of people do the stupid thing. <laughs> and Kubrick has made an entire career, every single one of his films... I think is based on a novel or a piece of prose work mm. of one form or another from the killing onwards. Yeah. <clears throat> or even if they were originals, he would bring in an author and work from that author's original script, mm. Dr. Strangelove, Terry Southern. Yeah. I think Dr. Strangelove's the only original that's not actually based upon anything. But he brought Terry Southern in and said, yeah. give me an idea. And Terry Southern wrote the idea out and then so he had a framework to yeah, build and then on. Stanley Kubrick essentially made the film out mm. of the idea and they collaborated on the screenplay Kubrick always collaborated not always but almost always collaborated on screenplays mm. 
Because he, one of his other contentions was, if you collaborate with somebody else on the screenplay, you won't always end up with the same screenplay, I suppose. Yeah. Plus, if they're collaborating with you on a screenplay, they won't just rewrite what they've already written. Mm. But between the two of you, you will somehow come to a third place that's in between the two that is neither entirely Kubrick or entirely his author. Mm. And so 2001, for example, seeing as that's where we came Mm -hmm. in. Arthur C. Clarke. But it's unlike anything Arthur C. Clarke wrote. Mm. If you read anything that Arthur C. Clarke wrote... It's based on The Sentinel, isn't it? Yeah. And and if you read The Sentinel, you never would get to 2001 A Space Odyssey from The Sentinel Mm. unless you brought in Stanley Kubrick... And between them, Kubrick and Clark found that place in the middle that's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with The Short Timers, which became Full Metal Jacket. And it's very much the same on Eyes Wide Shut, which mm-hmm. is based on Traum Novel by uh, Schnitzler. Mm-hmm. If I'm getting the names right. <laughs> I'm terrible with this he, stuff. Always forgetting names. He wasn't afraid to try different genres. Well, no, he that's precisely the point. On, yeah. I mean, he... I mean, this is one of the things... Going back to what I was saying about being a Doctor Who fan thinking I should like science fiction. Mm. No, it's not science fiction I like. It's a certain quality of storytelling I like, Mm. whatever genre it's in. So some of my favourite films, for example, might be romantic comedy, Mm -hmm. might be a crime drama, might be science fiction, but it's not anything to do with the genre. It's about the quality... Storytelling of the storytelling, and it's also actually one of my criteria is do they set out and achieve what they set out to achieve? Mm-hmm. Because, for instance, you can watch the naffest movies, and if they've achieved on everything, the Final Destination films, yeah, they're you know, bunch of poppycock, <laughs> but at the same time, they're tremendously good fun. They're popcorn movies, aren't they? Yeah, they are, yeah, and they absolutely achieve on all the aims that you set out to achieve with that kind of a film and they're brilliant Mm -hmm. i wouldn't write theses on the final destination movies you wouldn't write what theses oh theses sorry i wouldn't (laughs) do that either right no but you know what i'm saying yeah you don't uh, you don't complain about a film as a piece of rubbish Mm. just because it's not the kind of thing you like even if it's a very very good example of the kind of thing you don't like mm-hmm. because if it's a very very good example of the kind of thing you don't like it's still a good movie it's just that you don't happen to like it whereas with me it's I happen to like all sorts of different movies depending on the quality and this is and Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. and this is probably why I like Kubrick so much or maybe because I like Kubrick so much is why I like such a wide variety of different things. Mm. Because with Kubrick, it wasn't about <clears throat> the genre. It was about the what he could do with the source material. He didn't care yeah. where the source material came from. Mm-hmm. If he thought he could do something with it, he would do it. And uh, also, there's a certain... There's a theme running through all, his, all of his work, mm. which is... <clears throat> and so it's they might be in all sorts of different genres but they all essentially tell a very very similar story mm. and the, the theme he always has in all of his films I think I can't think of one which doesn't adversity the mm. individual in adversity 
Even yeah. 2001, which is the most different, mm. the biggest chunk of 2001 is those two guys in the spaceship. Yeah. And it's not about them and Hal necessarily per se, mm. although the Hal thing comes into it. Yeah. It's about being stuck on a nine-month journey mm-hmm. with one other person and absolutely nowhere to go and nothing to do. One thing that struck me, because I hadn't watched it for quite a while, I watched the DVD again earlier today, was just how <clears> much <throat> of the film, there's no dialogue. No. He's quite happy to yeah. let it play out. And the choice of music is just inspired. Oh, it is. docking scene <clears throat> and all that. You know that's an stuff. accident, a happy accident. Really? Yeah. Because what Kubrick did was, I mean, this was another thing he taught himself, self-taught. Editing hmm. is an art form. And today more so than ever, actually. Mm-hmm. But in order to edit, you have to have... Oh, that's my you have to have a text message, yeah? yeah. In order to edit, you have to have <laughs> a text message. No, in order to edit, you have to have a sense of rhythm. Yeah. And in order to get a sense of rhythm, what Stanley Kubrick would often do is put a piece of music on a temp track. Right, yeah. Edit the shots to fit in with the music, mm-hmm. then take that music off and put the score on afterwards. Yeah. And Howard North, who had written the score for Spartacus, mm-hmm. wrote the score for 2001, and Kubrick had put all these temp tracks on. Yeah. And he usually used classical music, mm-hmm. or I think sometimes he used previous film scores. Yeah. I may be mistaken him with... Lucas or Spielberg, who also did or does that, possibly. But anyway, he put all these pieces of classical music on. <clears throat> and then when the score came in, he tried it with the score, and he just realised that it was perfect. It worked better with the temporary tracks. Yeah. Yeah. But how have a North score, if you want to find out, isn't mm-hmm. available on CD or was. Yeah. can be tracked down. So okay. you can find out what 2001 should have sounded like <laughs> had Kubrick not decided to go back to the temp tracks. So, if you had to pick a definitive Kubrick film, is there such a thing? Can you just narrow it down to one film? You think, yeah, that really sums up why I think he's such a great director. Or is it? Is I there such a body of work? About his theme, actually, we'll come back to his theme in a okay. bit. Then. Mm. Sorry, just finishing my cup of tea there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> definitive Stanley Kubrick film, well, not two thousand and one. Mm. That's probably the most out of sync with his other films. Yeah. But only because what he does in that film, he does in a much more subtle way. Mm-hmm. Even though he's doing pretty much the same things as in the other films. Definitive Kubrick film, I'd like to say Barry Lyndon. Right. Or Paths of Glory, actually. Mm-hmm. As th- Those are my two favourite Stanley Kubrick films. Uh, but I'm not just picking those two because they're my favourites. I think they're probably my favourites because they're the most definitive. Mm -hmm. They both do what Kubrick does in all of his films and they both do it in such an exemplary fashion. And they're probably the two that have the most emotional kick as well. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to why in a bit because there's several other things we should talk about first probably. One of which, and if 2001 is a about how far your knowledge of Kubrick stretches, <laughs> yeah. you probably won't have got this because I can imagine you watched it this afternoon, right? Yeah. Did you laugh? Um, it's a comedy. Really? That's kind of the point. Right. All of Kubrick's films are comedies. 
but they're not laugh out loud comedies and they're not you know, I'm being a bit disingenuous here mm. they're not comedies there is a very rich vein of very dark humour mm. based on irony yeah there's a sardonicism that mm. runs throughout his entire films because not only is he talking about in his films putting the individual in a pressure situation mm. but also he's looking at the bizarre and unexpected ways that they react to those situations. Mm -hmm. So all of his films from start to finish are absolutely chock-a-block with people doing the oddest things. And I, I don't mean that in a sort of... A, <laughs> Not in a literal way. No, I don't mean it in a... <clears throat> in the kind of sense of jackass. Mm. I'm just... Although Slim Pickens sitting on top of a bomb as it's going out of a bomb, well, absolutely. Doors, is pretty jackass. Well, Doctor Strangelove is probably the most overt example. Hmm. Doctor Strangelove is the one Kubrick film where you can sit there and actually cackle hmm. like a hyena all the way through. And all his maddest ideas are put up on screen in the most literal mad form. Yeah. But in the other books, the other books, the other films, yeah. <clears throat> which all came from books, and yeah. this is another reason why he would choose these books, hmm. he'd always choose books with a sardonic sense of humour or a sense of irony or something that he could turn into yeah. a sense of irony. Because Shining, probably. I don't think I've ever read the Stephen King. I can't imagine he got that sardonic humour out of the book. Stephen King does have quite a lot of humour in his books. Uh, I must admit, I haven't read The Shining, so I don't mm. know for sure. I'm not entirely sure it would be as sardonic as Kubrick's. But there is <clears throat> something powerful and shocking and at the same time absolutely hilarious mm. about finding a box full of pieces of paper with all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, <laughs> yeah. written, typed up, you know, in a different format on yeah. every single sheet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody else pointed out once, and, you know, another filmmaker would have shown you the first five sheets, but Stanley Kubrick actually filled the entire box with pieces of paper with that typed up yeah. on it, so that he could go through the whole box. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that Kubrick found very amusing, and that you only really get if you know... I think you only really get the humour if you know Kubrick. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is like a... I don't, I've never met him, obviously, but I think if you know... If you can understand how his brain's working, you mm. can see the things that he finds funny that he puts in the films. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson... Not Jack Nicholson. Um, Shelley Duvall. Yeah. Going through that box, mm -hmm. finding all these pieces of paper on. And it's a long shot. He really holds the shot. Yeah. You know, he never cuts quick. He would just hold on the shot for like 45 seconds to mm. maybe a minute and a half or something with her just turning over sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet with the same thing written on all of them with typos and everything. Yeah. <clears throat> and Kubrick, as well as the fact that that's disturbing and frightening and weird and jolting, but it's also very, very funny. Yeah. It's not something you can... It's not something that you can sit down and think rationally about and take seriously. Mm. And again, this is kind of a theme through Kubrick's films. He looks at people behaving irrationally, puts it on screen in a way that maybe is disturbing or surreal mm. or kind of the, the response you trigger in an audience with that is, this is mental, this is insane, <laughs> this is frighteningly so. And you look at Dr. Strangelove... Mm. You know, the ideas are frightening. Yeah. But with Doctor Strangelove, he made the comedy overt. Yeah. So that you laugh at how frightening mm. it is. 
Whereas in The Shining, red rum, red rum, red rum. Chiller how frightening it is. But by the same token, it's only the tiniest hair's breadth away mm-hmm. from the madness that was Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. If you sit down in the right company, in the right frame of mind, in the right mood, and watch The Shining, you sit through that entire film and be cackling like hyenas, <laughs> just as you would with Dr. Strangelove. But, again, <clears throat> if you sit down with different company in a different mood, yeah. you can sit there and shit your pants. <laughs> <clears throat> Beep. <laughs> Or do we not? <laughs> oh, you can... oh, no, it's right. Okay. But anyway, The Shining, it's scary, but it's also very funny. Yeah. As are all his films. Years and years ago, before A Clockwork Orange, I suppose we should talk about why it was quote-unquote banned. It was banned over here in the UK for years It was never years banned. Years. It was never, ever banned. A Clockwork Orange has never been banned anywhere. Okay, it wasn't available for sale. Yes. Stanley Kubrick withdrew it from circulation. Didn't he make a different cut or something to get the rating lowered? Or did no, I... Clockwork Orange was always an X. Mm. In fact, it might be a 15 now because mm. it's probably been reclassified for yeah. Blu-ray mm. and a lot of the stuff that would have got it the X certificate when it first came out. Mm. Now, the point about a Clockwork Orange is, talking about recutting, we'll come yeah. back to that, okay? Mm. Because <clears throat> there's some very important stuff to consider when you talk about Kubrick recutting. Yeah. But A Clockwork Orange played in Britain. Yeah. And in one cinema in London in particular, it played constantly, every day, for a whole year. Hmm. But <clears throat> somebody took objection to the film and sent Stanley Kubrick's wife a death threat. Blimey. And although this person probably wasn't to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. and this threat almost certainly wasn't to be taken seriously. He didn't want to take any chances. Yeah. He just said, right, that's it. In this country, the country where I live, where I have the power to do this, I will withdraw a clockwork orange, and that'll be the end of it. Mm. It won't be seen in this country again. Now, at any point, over the next <clears throat> 28 years before he died, he could have rescinded that. Yeah. He could have changed his mind. But actually, I think I was talking about him having a sense of irony and a sardonic sense of humour. I actually think that because it became this legendary film (laughs) that had been banned in the UK for X number of years, however long it was since 1972 and the Mm. banning, I think he just thought that was hilarious. (laughs) And I think the reason he kept the ban till he died was not because he thought, oh my God, if I allow this film back into circulation, this guy who threatened my family 20 years ago is something going to turn up out of the woodwork and do something about it. He probably just thought, oh my God, people are actually taking this seriously and have turned this film into this legendary piece of celluloid, mm. which is not anything that it was ever supposed to be, and have turned it, have given it this almost mythical status. I just think he thought that was hilarious. And you know, up until the day he died, yeah. I think he was just laughing at that to be honest I seem to remember Malcolm McDowell saying in an interview once that he came very close to seriously damaging his eyes because of that scene where they yeah, yeah. torture him yeah because of the quite scary <clears throat> well Kubrick always did these long takes mm. and he'd always spend a lot of time on the scene mm. <clears throat> but you know and this was the, all these myths and legends and 
old wives' tales grew up about Stanley Kubrick, mm. and a lot of them are based on perception. Yeah. And it goes back to what I was saying right at the very start about him getting all these women to show their breasts so yeah. he could find the right one with the right breasts for the scene at the end or mm-hmm. whatever. And it goes back to that. That's a matter of perception. Malcolm McDowell would tell you that that's Stanley Kubrick being obsessive to a ridiculous degree. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at it reasonably, you know, if you look at it the way I tried to demonstrate with my story from the mind robber, yeah. if somebody turned up who was completely unsuitable then you would have lost an entire day's filming yeah. and all the wages of all the people you'd paid to be there, studios and sets and equipment that you've had to hire, all of that would have been completely wasted. Mm-hmm. So Kubrick, <clears throat> he famously said that in a filming day, the cheapest thing, the absolute cheapest part of the equation is the cost of the celluloid. You get the hire of the cameras, the hire of the actors, makeup, wardrobe, set yeah. designers, fitters and fixers and electricians and technicians and everything else. But the cheapest part of the equation is the celluloid. And often he would just film the same scene over and over again until he had it the way he wanted it. Yeah. Which some people would say is perfectionism. But if you look at the way his films are put together, and this is why people and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are a perfect example, mm. wanted to work with Kubrick. They knew that he <clears throat> wouldn't make them look no, stupid. At the end of the day, any performance an actor gives, a performance an actor gives on a stage is going to waver in... It's, it's ephemeral. Yeah, well, no, 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 no. Between, between the start of the play and the end of the play... Mm. The actor is not going to be able to keep up the same level of concentration Mm -hmm. throughout the 90 minutes or however long it is. It's going to come and go. Some some parts of that play he's going to be better in and other parts he's going to be kind of walking through it Mm. because, you know, he's just getting through it. So what you're saying is that his way... Well, with a film it's the same. An Mm -hmm. actor's performance in a film is not going to be at the top of the actor's game throughout the entire thing unless... You're Stanley Kubrick and you film each scene with the actors at the top of their game and you keep working till you get there and you can cut all those scenes together so that from the very first minute to the very last minute of one of Stanley Kubrick's films, every single actor in every single frame of every single scene of the entire movie is giving their best performance. Mm -hmm. Now, whether you like the performances they give, because he did like slightly eccentric performances. There's no two ways about that. But, and this is why I would argue with somebody who says Stanley Kubrick was a perfectionist, mm. he wasn't looking for perfection. He was looking for the, he wasn't looking for the best way to play a scene, the most perfect way to play a scene. He was looking for the most interesting way to play a scene. Mm. I think Tom Cruise said that he filmed coming through a door something like 57 times. Yeah. Which probably sounds like Tom Baker. (laughs) But you know what Tom Baker said about when he was Doctor Who, he Mm. would find different ways to open the door. Yeah. So that it was interesting interesting for him, yeah. Every time. This is essentially what Stanley Kubrick did. Mm. He would film, I don't know what the truth of this 57 times walking Mm. through the door is, but Stanley Kubrick didn't want it to be boring, didn't want it to be dull, Mm -hmm. didn't want it to be out of character, didn't want it to be 
um, ineffectual, didn't want it to be irrelevant, wanted every moment of every scene of every movie to be relevant and interesting mm. and absorbing. I mean, you watched 2001. Yeah. You're in the frame of mind to sit down and watch that. Mm. You can get absolutely mesmerised by yeah. that movie. It's hypnotic. Mm. This is why the trippers took to it at the end of the 1960s. Right. It wasn't made for them. Not by any stretch of the imagination was 2001 made for the hippies to go and sit and smoke joints and trip out to. <laughs> it's a relatively serious. And when I say serious, I mean serious with... Kubrick's humour running through yeah. it, but it's a relatively serious attempt to make a film that Stanley Kubrick thought, you know, whatever genre he went to, mm. he always wanted to make the best example of that genre. The defining film. Yeah, so yeah. he, as far as he's concerned, 2001 is his attempt to make the defining science fiction film. Yeah. And as far as he's concerned, that's what he tried to do. So every moment throughout every one of his films, at this never ever a line of dialogue that's out of place mm -hmm. there's never a raised eyebrow that's out of place there's never an expression or a lull or an inflection that's out of place everything that's in there is in there for a reason and it's not necessarily the the reason that Stanley Kubrick wanted it to be when he started the film mm. but as he makes a film each film is an experimental process of finding the most interesting the most relevant and the most <clears throat> plot-expanding yeah. way to work your way through the film and make it all make sense, but not just make sense, but be exciting and interesting and watchable. People have said, the thing about Stanley Kubrick's films is, even if you go right back to the start, they don't age. Mm. They might be in black and white, and they might be in 4 by 3 or whatever, yeah. and they might be made on 16 mil, and they might be made with special effects that are old you know out of date but the quality of the performances and the quality of the cinematography yeah. and the quality of what they achieved does not age there's a timelessness about them they just don't fit in mm. they don't fit in with any decade or any movement or any fashion or anything each one of Stanley Kubrick's films is unique and individual mm. and of itself and just cannot be placed there's a really beautiful shot he repeats a few times in 2001. Um, you see it first in the <clears throat> Dawn of Man section where the apes are all crowding around the monolith. monolith. And you've got this shot looking up from the bottom of the monolith up to the top. And you can see a crescent moon and the sun <clears throat> directly above it. Yeah. And he repeats that a few more times. And it's just a really beautiful looking shot. Almost everything he did was beautiful. <clears throat> One of the reasons which... Uh, one of the reasons for which is that he started as a photographer mm. and went into motion pictures mm. from still pictures. And I don't think he was ever taught that either. Mm. Again, self-taught with the photography. In photography, in aesthetics, there are rules. Yeah. Um, one of the cardinal rules is if you split your frame up into three. That's right. Rule of thirds. Yeah. And Stanley Kubrick was never taught that, mm. never learned that, and never throughout his entire career in the <laughs> cinema did that. If you look at Stanley Kubrick's films, the frames are divided into twos mm -hmm. almost all the time. All those really famous corridor shots in The Shining. Mm -hmm. any, other, any other filmmaker, and not since, because since Kubrick did that, other filmmakers have done yeah. that. 
And actually, the first time he does it is in Paths of Glory. Mm -hmm. If you see Paths of Glory, there's an absolute direct line from there to The Shining. But what he does is, instead of putting the buggy slightly off to one side of the corridor, so you're coming through it at a slight angle, mm. he puts it absolutely dead centre and goes down this tunnel, absolutely dead central. And that's, I mean... With the tunnel effect, yeah. it's not as unusual, mm. but it was still a pretty unusual thing to do. But he does it all the time, yeah. in every shot, in every every film. There's a scene in A Clockwork Orange where <clears throat> Alex gets taken into the prison mm. and he has to hand over his particulars. And it goes on for two or three minutes. Yeah. And it's just one shot from an absolutely still camera mm. looking it's in profile I think and it's absolutely sideways on with Alex standing dead in the middle of the screen and it doesn't cut away to anything mm. and the camera doesn't move anywhere and Alex doesn't move he's just standing there dead in the centre of the screen while he just hands over this stuff and it's absolutely hilarious but at <laughs> the same time it's really disturbing because it's a because <clears throat> subconsciously it's a freakishly odd shot and the fact that it never cuts away mm. in fact if you look at a clockwork orange there are so many examples of shots that just go on and on and on almost forever yeah so that you get to <clears throat> there's like an action sequence where mm. they're in a car and they're doing all this ridiculous stuff in the car yeah and any other director would be changing the shot like mm. this all the time changing the angle changing the perspective changing the shot yeah kubrick just sticks his camera on the front of the car and literally about two minutes with just a fixed perspective of the camera on the front of the car yeah. with these four guys sitting in the car and laughing and all the things that they do while they're in the car you have to kind of guess at because mm. you see the aftermath of what they've just done. They're like knocking over bins and stuff like yeah. that, right? So you see the bins going down the side of the car and coming up behind the car mm. but you don't see them hit the bins because the camera is just fixed on the front of the car on their four faces as they're doing it. <clears throat> and after three seconds, with any other film, you'd be expecting a cut. Mm. And after five seconds, you're actually starting to want the cut because that's what you're subconsciously expecting. Yeah. And after 10 seconds, you're getting desperate for the cut. <laughs> and after 20 seconds, your mind has now sort of gone into reverse. Yeah. It knows the cut's not coming. So now it's expecting the shot to just carry on and on and on. <laughs> And as it does, your mind gets further away from wanting the cut yeah. and more and more into just watching this scene. Mm -hmm. So that it's not actually the faces of these four guys laughing at the mayhem they're creating mm -hmm. that becomes the funny thing. But subconsciously, your mind is turning cartwheels because it doesn't know what the hell is going on. And this is just because Stanley Kubrick threw out the grammar of filmmaking mm -hmm. and created his own grammar at all of his films from The Killing and The Paths of, and Paths of Glory, mm. right on through up to Eyes Wide Shut, they all have the same grammar yeah. that no other filmmaker has mm. ever been able to replicate because all these other filmmakers come from a perspective of having been taught their craft. Yeah. And in order to re repeat what Stanley Kubrick did, not only would they have to unlearn their craft, but they'd have to relearn it from scratch, mm. having never learned mm. it before in the same way as Stanley Kubrick did. When Steven Spielberg did AI, <clears throat> which was supposed to be a film that Stanley Kubrick was yeah. going to make and never did, <clears throat> and Steven Spielberg said, oh, I, okay, I'll make it. 
That film that Steven Spielberg made, even if it had been from exactly the same script as Stanley Kubrick mm. would have used, and of course it wasn't, but even if it had been, it, it would have been, been so different from mm. the film that Kubrick would have made. No filmmaker has ever been able to, or will ever be able to, replicate what Kubrick did. Mm. What was the thing you wrote down that we were going to come back to? Recutting. <clears throat> oh yeah, of course. Recutting. <laughs> <clears throat> well... <clears throat> We're going to forget so many things that I wanted to talk about, but let's talk about recutting. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. which famously was Stanley Kubrick's last film before he yeah. died. And when he died, everybody said, well, apart from the fact that everybody said, oh no, Stanley Kubrick's died. Mm-hmm. One of the things that everybody said was, but phew, he finished his last film before he did. Mm-hmm. And it was cut together and the music and everything, it was finished. It wasn't finished. Right. <clears throat> Stanley Kubrick comes from a generation of filmmakers who were used to a system whereby only a handful of prints of a movie would get made and they would open in cinemas in one town and then after they'd spent a couple of weeks there they'd move to another town and they'd gradually work their way around the country over the course of several months. Sounds familiar. Yeah. (laughs) But that's how they did it in those days. And... It was Jaws and Star Wars, Godfather, Jaws and Star Wars mm-hmm. that changed the system. Yeah. And when people say, you know, when people look at those three films and say they change the way films are made, mm-hmm. when people look at blockbusters now instead of films that could just work in their own right, yeah. they're not talking about what the films actually did, mm. but the way they were distributed. Yeah. Star Wars and Jaws and The Godfather were distributed everywhere all at once. Yeah. And that's what changed the way cinema works. Mm-hmm. Well, Kubrick. <clears throat> came from a generation of filmmakers who were used to opening in a single town or a handful of towns first before the film moved on. So what Kubrick would do, he would assemble a cut of the film, open it in maybe just one cinema sometimes, Mm -hmm. find out which bits the audience were working with and which bits they weren't, and, and... the other thing is you can only really gauge how well a film is working once it's in once front it's of an out. audience. Even he if you're used not to there... go to the cinema a lot, didn't he, to <clears throat> do that? But even if you're not there with the audience, you can kind of get more of a feel from it from, I don't know, the feedback, or even just, you can just get a feel mm. from it for it. So he would assemble long cuts, put them out in a cinema or a town or a handful of cinemas, yeah. then take all the reels back, re-edit, and then send out a whole new version of the film to go across the rest of the country. So if you went to the cinema and saw an early screening, you might be seeing a completely, well, not perhaps completely different, but certainly a different cut. Well, yeah, the film and sometimes they didn't actually make it out into public. Mm. But off the top of my head and in order, Dr. Strangelove mm. originally ended with a custard pie fight that went on for something like 15 minutes. <laughs> right. That went. <clears throat> 2001. Um, only tinkered with slightly, but some of the start of that film has been tinkered with. Yeah. Uh, what was the next one after 2001? A Clockwork Orange. Now, there's a different mm-hmm. reason why A Clockwork Orange is cut, inverted commas. Yeah. Come back to that in a bit. I think Barry Lyndon stayed the same. The Shining lost about 40 minutes in edits throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And the next one after that's Full Metal Jacket lost a whole third of the movie from wow. the middle of the movie. He cut out a whole third of that movie, one whole entire segment from the middle of the movie, which is why it now jumps from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. Originally, there was a whole sequence going on for I don't know, the better part of an hour. 
which told the story of how it gets from the first half of the film to the second half of the film. That went. And then you get to Eyes Wide Shut. <clears throat> now, the original cut of The Shining that went out was about two hours and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the cut that had eventually made it into cinemas was two hours. Right. He cut out about 40 minutes mm -hmm. from right throughout the film. Yeah. Just trimming scenes here and there mm -hmm. rather than taking out a big segment like yeah. the Full Metal Jacket. Eyes Wide Shut, the version that Stanley Kubrick finished mm. when he died was two hours and 40 minutes long. Yeah. Now, there's if you look at his history and the way he made his films, there is no reason not to suppose that he the version of Eyes Wide Shut mm. that would have made it to the cinemas would have been two hours long. Yeah. And he would have got rid of bits of scenes here and there and maybe sometimes it before it got its final release. exactly mm. there's a scene in the middle of that film that's quite pivotal mm. with um sydney pollock in a bathroom mm -hmm. but it, or no standing by a snooker table or both actually um uh, but but it's 40 minutes long or something mm. somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes long yeah <clears throat> it doesn't hold up for that amount mm. of time and it wouldn't have been that long if Kubrick had finished that film. Yeah. So, Eyes Wide Shut, instead of being Stanley Kubrick's last great film, is Stanley Kubrick's last bloated non-masterpiece, mm. only because he never finished it. Yeah. When they put out those special editions on DVD years later, I do wish that somebody had had the good sense to actually sit down with Eyes Wide Shut, with the members of Stanley Kubrick's family yeah. that used to... his. Um, son-in-law or brother-in-law which is Har I can't remember his name Jan Harlan mm -hmm. uh, used to work quite close with he, closely with him when it came to all this kind of stuff yeah. somebody had sat down with him and said look Eyes Wide Shut should have been two hours rather than two hours and forty minutes mm. how about we try and assemble what Stanley Kubrick might actually have ended up with and even though they wouldn't have made the exact same edits as he would I think they could have made a better film of it. Yeah. And I would like to have seen that film mm. because Eyes Wide Shut is probably <clears throat> the film of Stanley Kubrick's that works the least well. Mm. And that's why, because it's too long and too slow. And it could have been, it would never have been fast. There's not necessarily any fault of his. <clears throat> no, because he died before he had the opportunity to do that to it. He, mm. I think he finished that edit few months before he died and if it's anything like me and probably like many 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 millions of other people if you're working on something i like to get it finished yeah and then leave it for a bit mm -hmm. and then come back to it with fresh eyes and yeah. see what needs doing to it mm. that's just a standard way of working isn't it yeah so i think stanley kubrick finished that film set it aside for six months would have come back to it would have tinkered with it would have made it better and of course he never got the chance to mm -hmm. Clockwork Orange, interesting story about that, yeah. <coughs> on a similar kind of a subject, mm -hmm. the, and this ties into The Shining as well, I'll come back to The Shining in a moment, the novel of A Clockwork Orange has, I think, three acts of seven chapters each, mm. and the version of the book that was put out in America, for some reason, omitted the last chapter. Right. So when Stanley Kubrick, uh, the last chapter is the redemption. Right. <clears throat> Because it's about... Do you, do you know A Clockwork Orange? Vaguely, I've not watched it, but... Well, anyway, Clockwork Orange is about this bad lad, this bad sort. And 
they try and make him into a not bad sort mm -hmm. and it doesn't work and at the end of the film he goes back to being a bad sort mm -hmm. but at the end of the book there's an extra chapter because he's I think he's supposed to be like 14 or 15 mm -hmm. during the course of the book and at the end of the book there's an extra chapter which shows him a few years later or a few years older moving on settling down yeah and leaving his wild ways behind mm. now because Stanley Kubrick had a copy of the American version of the novel he didn't film that last no. scene which is part of the reason why A Clockwork Orange is so notorious because it appears to show that your bad ways are a good thing if the people who want to tamper with them and turn you into a good person are even worse than you are mm. and of course the moral of that book is not it's good to be bad, but that's what the film appears to yeah, show yeah. because that final chapter never mm. made it into the film. So that's part of the reason <clears throat> why Kubrick got this death threat or whatever it was yeah. because this person had obviously said, you know, you're evil. You've made this mm. film that's about being evil. Mm. And on the subject of The Shining, going back to the editing, yeah. because Kubrick was living in England and his deal with Warner's, was about final cut and final say in England, but in the rest of the world, different rules apply. Yeah. Well, the version of The Shining that's on DVD in America is the two hour and 40 minute version. Okay. Because they obviously said, well, more is obviously good. Mm. And they still had a copy of the two hour and 40 minute cut. So yeah. that's the version they put on VHS and mm. DVD and Blu ray. Mm. So if you buy a copy of The Shining from America, you'll get, well, actually, because of the changing frame rate between cinema and television mm. is about two and a half hours. Yeah. And that's the wrong version. Mm. I've obviously got it and I've obviously seen it and it's not as good a film. Yeah. There is extra stuff in there. Mm. One of the things that's less good about it is that in the shorter version, the director's cut, if you will, yeah, uh, he leaves it ambiguous as to the nature of the ghosts. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously throughout the entire film, Jack Nicholson is talking to people that are only in his head. Yeah. Or are they? Are there actually ghosts there and is he talking actually to ghosts? Mm -hmm. Now, the American version kind of spells, spells it, out it out in black yeah. and white, whereas the British version kind of doesn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're both slightly ambiguous on that point. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like um, <clears throat> Blade Runner. Right, yeah. Similar sort yeah. of thing to Blade Runner, really. But yeah, the two different versions of The Shining tell a slightly different story mm. in that respect, which is probably not a good thing. Um, <clears throat> Technically wise, he was quite an innovator, wasn't he? Well, he was only insofar as he always had an idea of what he wanted to do. And like I said before, he always wanted to do things in the most interesting way. Mm. And because he'd grown up and taught himself, yeah. and because he'd never had the rules laid out to him... He's one of these people, and I like this, and I like to think there's maybe a little bit of this in me. He's one of these people who says, well, I've never learned the rules, mm. and insofar as I'm concerned, there are no rules. Because if you learn, I mean, this is, I, I always think this is the worst thing about bands who've been taught <clears throat> to, to play music in a music class. Mm. You kind of learn the technical stuff. Yeah. And you can probably be really, really good at the technical stuff. 
but you only get real invention when you have to figure things yeah. out for yourself. And this is what Kubrick did. Mm-hmm. He only innovated because he was never satisfied with people telling him, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, one of my mum's favourite expressions to me when I was growing up is, there's no such thing as can't, there's only won't. Yeah. So when anybody said to Stanley Kubrick, we cannot achieve this shot, Stanley Kubrick would always turn around and say, no, what you're saying to me is, you will not achieve this shot, or you do not know how to achieve this shot. Mm-hmm. But if we just sit down and think about it, we can figure we'll out it. a way to achieve this shot. And if you look at 2001 and Space mm-hmm. Odyssey, that's mm-hmm. the best example. He doesn't not achieve any of the shots, even though <clears throat> the effects technology in that film did not exist when he set out no. to make it. They created that themselves, you know, in a shed. Well, that was a huge inspiration to George Lucas when he <clears throat> came to make Star Wars. Well, yeah, and I think it's Doug Trumbull who's one of the AFX guys on mm. that. And he went on to make Silent Running, yeah. which was also pre-Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at Star Wars, people think it revolutionised effects. And it did, because George Lucas did something with that film, mm-hmm. which was the um, motion control motion, cameras yeah. that had never been done before. Mm. But if you look at Silent Running, it's not a million miles away no. from the effects in Star no. Wars. And actually, it's only because that film's kind of been forgotten that Star Wars looks as good today mm. as it does. Wasn't Kubrick one of the first ones to use Steadicam? Yeah, he was using Steadicam. Actually, Steadicam in The Shining appeared on screen after it did in Destiny of the Daleks. <laughs> Although Stanley Kubrick probably filmed that stuff before. I don't know what the timeline is. But yeah, brand new camera. <clears throat> and Stanley Kubrick has the opportunity to use this brand new camera. Mm-hmm. Of course he's going to. Yeah. But he actually, instead of just using the camera, he actually gets the guy who's created it, or is chief operator. Yeah. And the guy who's... Um, the, the guy ex- who... The expert. The, the expert. He says to him, right, I'm not just paying for the camera, I'm paying for you. Mm-hmm. I want you to come down to our sets. And we'll... Uh, and you've probably seen this on documentaries, but <clears throat> the steady cam is supposed to be held at head height. Yeah. And the way it operates is that it's on a sort of framework that yeah. fits across your body, which makes the camera really light. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like swings and pulleys. There's yeah. like all this technical stuff going on in the framework mm-hmm. that makes the camera really light. And also it's got like a system of suspension so that, yeah. it, so that when you move, it doesn't move with you, but kind of holds its position, mm-hmm. which is why it's so steady. Yeah. Hence the steady cam. Well, Stanley Kubrick said, yeah, but I want it down at the height of this buggy. And the man said, it can't. Mm -hmm. He said, it's this high. That's how this framework works. (laughs) It's this high. You can't have it down there. And Stanley Kubrick said, there's no such thing as can't. Mm. And between Kubrick and this guy, either the operator or the creator, whatever, the expert, Mm -hmm. they actually took the camera apart worked out a way of fitting the lens at the other end of the framework. (laughs) But by doing so, essentially, they had to turn the camera upside down. Right. So then they worked out a way of getting the lens to... And it's not just as simple as turning the lens over. Mm. You actually have to get the film to feed through in a different direction in order to not get... Well, basically, the film upside down. Yeah. So, I've got a bit of a cold here. So they've actually got 
the film feeding through the camera backwards and the camera turned upside down <laughs> just to create those shots. But that's the perfect example of yeah. there's no such thing as can't. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a will, yeah. there's a way. You know, if you want to do something, unless it's like, you know, I want to jump off the top of a building and go upwards instead of down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as long as you're not fighting the laws of actual physics, yeah. there's always a way. Mm. And that, that's what Kubrick did. Um, changing the subject entirely. Plot yeah. of orange. Going mm. back to the subject of humour in Stanley Kubrick films. Yeah. Years and years ago, I had a friend who was... I think he was learning film for about 15 years to the point where he was actually teaching film before he'd finished learning film. (laughs) Right. But anyway, he was teaching film. Mm -hmm. And he knew I was a huge Kubrick fan and because he knew that there was all this stuff about Kubrick, about the cameras and about, you know, all the stuff I've been talking about, the Mm -hmm. technique and everything else, he would often come to me and sort of pick my brain. Yeah. And then go off and teach it. The cheeky bugger. <laughs> <clears throat> but the point was, he'd never seen a lot of Orange. Right. And this was while it was still withdrawn, before mm-hmm. Kubrick died. This would have been, I don't know, early to mid-90s. And obviously I had picked up a American VHS or mm. something. I had a copy. Yeah. Of reasonable quality as well. It yeah. wasn't like a really bad pirate copy. Mm. It's a reasonable copy on VHS of yeah. Clockwork Orange. And, uh, you know, we were talking about Clockwork Orange, and I said to him, come around and watch it. And he said, okay. And this was 20 years or more after it was withdrawn. Mm-hmm. And all these myths and legends had grown up around this film. Channel 4 once tried to show clips from it in a documentary about it. Right. And there'd been an injunction, and they'd been banned. Mm. But there's a law that says you're allowed to show clips in an editorial yeah. context. Yeah. So ultimately, Channel 4 were able to show this short documentary. Mm-hmm. But, and that just fed into the myth. Yeah. Because then you've people got desperate to see a it. handful of clips mm-hmm. and people are like even more believing all the myths and legends mm-hmm. about this film. And uh, one of the things about the book is the expression ultraviolence, right? Mm-hmm. Which uh, Anthony Burgess had created for the, one of the characters in the book because they, they all speak in this sort of yeah. Russian-German language called Nadsat, yeah. which is just a peppering of words throughout the dialogue. Isn't that where Maloko, the group, got yeah, their name from? And Heaven 17. Yeah, right. Uh, so, I mean, the book's really easy to understand. You develop an affinity for the words and the language really quickly. Yeah. But a word like ultraviolence, and of course... You throw a word like ultraviolence out into the world, and that's going to have myths and legends of its mm. own built up around it. Yeah. <clears throat> so, because it was banned, mm-hmm. and because it was ultraviolent, this guy had this impression of what a Clockwork Orange was going to be like. So, I turned up at my house at like two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, <laughs> and I made us both a cup of tea, and we sat there, and we watched a Clockwork Orange, and we were baying like hyenas throughout the <laughs> entire film and afterwards he just turned around to me and he said what's all the fuss about no he turned around and said I had no idea it was going to be so funny mm. but of course it was it's mm. a black comedy the same as all of Stanley Kubrick's other films are black comedies and actually <clears throat> in 
in terms of putting the madness up on screen, yeah. as you could probably tell from earlier when mm. I was talking about that shot in the car, yeah. A Clockwork Orange is pretty damn close to Doctor mm. Strange Love mm. in many respects. And that's probably another thing that threw a lot of people, that it's ultra-violent. Yeah, so he had he expected it to be no, really he'd gruesome? Ex- and He'd expected something that was really gruesome, yeah. violent, um, graphic... Yeah, and with a really serious like a video tone. nasty sort of yeah. setup. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, it's a black comedy. There's hardly any violence in it whatsoever. Mm. All the violence that is in it is so heightened. It's like Tom and Jerry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you watch A Clockwork Orange and uh, action, for want of a better word, scenes in it. I like something out of a Hanna Barbera cartoon. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> it really is. It's like that. It's a black comedy, mm. and it's and Kubrick. <clears throat> developed this affinity in the 1970s for hmm, not quite sure how to phrase this uh, for British sitcoms right well, I'm not saying he was a big fan of British sitcoms mm. but Stanley Kubrick would watch a lot of British telly yeah to not gauge the sensibilities and not to pilfer from but just to kind of absorb himself in different things I guess yeah or to I mean to find new ways of doing things. Mm. Sometimes you find new ways of doing things by seeing what somebody else has done yeah. and changing the context. And all this guy. But mm. he would he would watch British telly. And one of the things he'd obviously find was sitcoms mm. and, you know, Leonard Rossiter. Yeah, in <clears throat> 2001, yeah. And not only that, Leonard Rossiter in Barry Lyndon. Mm. And Leonard Rossiter in Barry Lyndon is an absolutely hilarious character. Mm. I mean, you watch Barry Lyndon and you won't laugh throughout the entire film because it's very slow-paced. Mm. Absolutely beautifully filmed. Yeah. Or because it's a period film, Stanley Kubrick said, right, we're not going to use any artificial light whatsoever. So the entire film is like, if a shot is set in the morning, they would go there in the morning to film mm. it and if it wasn't the right kind of weather, they'd go there the next Didn't morning. Didn't he get some... Was it Zeiss... Lenses that were being used by NASA so he could film in that. So he could film in candlelight. Yeah. So that anything that was filmed after dark, because Mm. obviously, you know, film these days is a lot more sophisticated than it was then. But because he couldn't do it, yes, Mm. he had special lenses fitted to the camera so they could film in candlelight for their after dark sequences because he refused to use any non natural light. Mm. But uh, Lenny Roster. Yeah, there you go. Perfect example of the most bizarre casting. Mm. Yeah, perfect. Mm. In two thousand and one, he's quite funny in two thousand and one as yeah. well, actually. But you don't laugh at what he does. But at the same time, <clears throat> you can't take his character entirely seriously. No, it's like a sort of mock Russian. Yeah, yeah. It's and in uh, Barry Lyndon, he's even weirder. <laughs> I mean, and you know, there's a really odd reaction shot in Barry Lyndon which looks like it comes really out of place, unless you're into the rhythm of the humour of the film. Yeah. Because Barry Lyndon is probably one of his darkest films. Mm. It's, again, it's kind of like taking a man and showing the pressure and the reaction. Mm-hmm. And it's and the book it's based upon, which is by Thackeray. Yeah. It's kind of the fall and rise of Reginald Perrin. This is the fall and rise of Barry Lyndon, the rise and fall. Right. So the first half of the film is the rise of Barry Lyndon, mm-hmm. and the latter half of the film is the fall of Barry Lyndon. And my God, what a fall! Takes about an hour and twenty minutes, mm-hmm. and it's just one thing after another, mm-hmm. and it's very 
slow <laughs> and very, very depressing. And also utterly, utterly hilarious. <laughs> <clears throat> but you won't laugh. It's such dark black humour. So there's a vein of black <clears throat> humour that runs through all of his films. I tell you, the great thing about Barry Lyndon, for people who think slow films won't be their cup of tea, and for people who think three hours of Stanley Kubrick in period costumes is going to be <laughs> an absolute nightmare. The great thing about it is, if you've ever seen Paddington, Michael Horden doing the narration. Paddington Bear. Yeah. <clears throat> right, yeah, I just wondered whether there was another Paddington. That... No, Paddington Bear. <laughs> right, with, okay, yeah. Uh, Michael Horden doing yeah. the narration. Yeah, he marmalade narr- sandwiches, yeah. He does the narration yes. on Barry Lyndon. This oh. is before Paddington. Okay. And the narration. He on has Barry done more Lyndon. than Paddington, to be fair. But you know. No, but you have not let me finish my sentence. <laughs> go Mark. on, go on. The narration on Barry Lyndon is in exactly the same style and tone beat and beat. inflection as that on oh. Paddington Bear. It's almost literally like watching <laughs> Paddington Bear, except this really depressing tale of this absolute cock from Ireland. <laughs> During the. Watch that now. <clears throat> oh. For my money, Barry Lyndon is one of the greatest films ever made by anybody. Mm. I would unreservedly recommend it to absolutely anybody. And Pass of Glory. Mm-hmm. Those two films. I'd recommend any of Kubrick's films, but those two above all others. Yeah. Pass of Glory. <clears throat> Do you want to just have a moment? Yeah. <laughs> Pass of Glory is such a perfect... And it's short as well. Right. And... Well, this is the other great thing that Kubrick learned early in his career, as well as the fact that you don't play by the rules, Mm -hmm. and as well as the fact that, you know, in order to make something profound, Mm -hmm. you don't take something that's already profound and take the profundity out of it. Mm -hmm. You take something that's not profound and add the profundity into the mix. Mm -hmm. And when I say profound, I mean a bit disingenuous. That's not really the word I'm looking for, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. In order to make something worthwhile. Yeah. But the other lesson he learned <clears throat> with Pass of Glory was, and he learned this as well with The Killing, but in Pass of Glory he told it with a straightforward narrative. Mm-hmm. But he learned something about emphasis in that film because in Pass of Glory <clears throat> there's about four stories all going on at the same time. Right. And most films would have a text Mm-hmm. And layers of subtext. Yeah. That is an A plot and yeah. a B, C, D plot, whatever. Mm-hmm. But in Passive Glory, instead of having the emphasis all on one of those four plots, he has all floor, all floor, all four plots going mm-hmm. through the film, more or less in tandem, yeah. and more or less with the same emphasis. Right. So that it's only really when you get to the end of the film. And almost the very, very, very end of the film mm. that you actually know what the film's about. Right. There's, <clears throat> well, I don't want to spoil it too much for mm-hmm. people. There's a, there's a sort of war story. Yeah. And there's a sort of, um, not disaster, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. There's a war story and a tragedy. Yeah. And right at the very end of the film is. Only in the second to last scene that you fully understand that the entire thing's not really a war film at all. And it's not really a tragedy at all. Mm. And it's not a human drama about the people who are in it at all. It's actually a political satire. Right. And you don't get that until the penultimate scene. Mm. Because all those four stories have had 
equal importance with one another mm. throughout the film. No other filmmaker would have done that. Yeah. They would have had an A plot and the subtexts yeah. would have been hidden away in the B plots. But Stanley Kubrick put everything right up on top mm-hmm. and learned and developed and established a new technique. Which is So everything's there to see on the screen, but through sleight of hand, you don't finally realise until the very end. You don't understand until the second to last. And only because there's a one more scene right at the very, very, very end of the film hmm. that almost has nothing to do with what you've seen, but that absolutely puts the nails into the coffin. Hmm. Hmm. Almost on all four plots. This yeah. one scene at the end. Like a crystallising moment. And funnily enough, the scene at the end, <clears throat> I'm going to spoil it by saying what it is, the only female character in the entire film is just in this one scene at the end mm-hmm. and after he made this film Stanley Kubrick married this woman and that's the woman he was still married to when he died <laughs> the one I wrote to about the Doctor right. Who episodes that's her in that film wow no but yes that that, that is <clears throat> it's not even like a deception or a twist mm. it makes perfect sense when you watch it and it's not one of those moments where you suddenly go oh so that's it mm. But it's that, you will watch the film and you will be so immersed and involved in all the different aspects of it that it's only after you've seen the yeah. film and this final scene it all comes together. that you suddenly realise that that's what the whole film was about mm-hmm. all that time. And you're right, it's a kind of sleight of hand. Mm. But it's only because he didn't know, again, not to do that. Yeah. He just he wanted to make this story. I think it's from a novel. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. We should have looked this up. I should have looked this up <laughs> before I came. <clears throat> But this story that he wanted to tell, and he just made the story that he wanted to tell Mm -hmm. without referring to the way he should be telling the story. He just made the story. Yeah. And then, of course, again, when this film comes out, it's a bit of a shock for all sorts of reasons. And one of the reasons is, it's got Kirk Douglas in it. Right. And Kirk Douglas was instrumental in the breaking apart of the studio system from Mm -hmm. Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s. Right. And during this, by the time you get to the 1960s, the studio system, where actors and directors and writers were signed yeah. to studios in mm-hmm. handcuffed deals where yeah. they couldn't move on, and didn't get paid a lot for what they did because they were stuck in these deals. Yeah, the likes of Chaplin as well, who <clears throat> formed United Artists, which was a, exactly. sort of a breakaway. And Kirk Douglas, in the late 50s, was instrumental in the creation of independents mm. who were able to exist outside of that system altogether. Yeah. And Pasagori was one of the first of those kinds of films mm. made entirely independently of the system. Yeah. And um, because, interesting factoid, because it was set in France mm. and it's a war film right. and it's, um, you know, all the characters are French. Mm-hmm. Um, it was banned in France for 25 years that is the only Stanley Kubrick film that's ever been banned that's crazy because it's a political satire right. and the French Weren't not understanding happy. that it wasn't necessarily <laughs> about them <laughs> yeah. really didn't like the mm. political satire mm. aspect of it thought it was an attack on the way French government works yeah. and banned it until um, oh, 1980s it finally came really? out it was made in the 1950s and finally came out in the 1980s I think in France <laughs> which is you know a bit of a thing Spartacus yeah I suppose we ought to talk about I mean I, 
you know, I didn't really come to go through the films or to come up with lots of trivia, mm. but might as well do a bit of trivia. Go on in. Um, <clears throat> Spartacus was originally going to be directed by... Oh, God, the name escapes me. Could look it up. Google it, kids. <laughs> if you want to find out who Spartacus was originally going to be made by, you can Google it. If you so desire. Yeah. Um, Stanley Mann. No. Uh, Douglas Mann. No. Oh, Isle God. of Mann. No. no. Um, oh, wow. Now I've thought of the name. I can't... Oh, anyway. <clears throat> but he got sacked off that film. And Stanley Kubrick, because the previous film he'd made... Oh, you've brought it up. but Oh, Anthony Mann. Yeah. There you go. Anthony Mann got fired off Spartacus because the people who were producing it didn't like the way he was doing it. Mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick had just made Path of Glory with Kirk Douglas. You know, as I was saying, independent mm -hmm. film. Kirk Douglas, extremely impressed with Stanley Kubrick. And Kirk Douglas is the star and one of the producers of Spartacus. And when Anthony Mann gets fired, mm -hmm. Kirk Douglas rings Stanley Kubrick up and says, need a director for this quick. Will you come in and make this film? Yeah. Okay, there's now two bits of trivia, so I'll do the most trivial first. Mm -hmm. The film that Stanley Kubrick was making at the time he got the phone call was One-Eyed Jacks with um, Marlon Brando. Okay. I hadn't actually He hadn't actually started work on that, mm. but that was the film he was next set up to make. So the, the minor piece of been an interesting com combination of those two. Well, yeah. Minor piece of trivia is because Stanley Kubrick left that project you know so close to it going into production mm. Marlon Brando stepped in and that became Marlon Brando's first and I believe only film as director right but only purely because there was nobody else to do it and Stanley mm. Kubrick had just left mm. it wasn't that Marlon Brando wanted to direct a film no it was that there was nobody else and he stepped in at short notice and took it on himself mm -hmm. so One-Eyed Jacks famously Marlon Brando's first film as director and only, I think, mm -hmm. only happened that way because of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. But the main piece of trivia, if you want to call it trivia, is Stanley Kubrick then comes in having only written, directed, produced, shot and edited films by himself mm -hmm. for his entire career up to that point, then gets brought in on somebody else's film yeah. with somebody else's script with somebody else producing it. The whole crew there, pre-picked yes. by someone else. Yep, you've already been working with another director they mm. weren't happy with. And essentially, I mean, Stan Spartacus is not a Stanley Kubrick film. Mm. He directed it. Mm. And it, there are moments in Spartacus when you can tell it's directed by Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> the script... Oddly enough, and maybe because Stanley Kubrick started bringing some of his own stuff to it, but I don't think so, actually. Hmm. But perhaps it's because it was Kirk Douglas, and Kirk Douglas has a similar sensibility as Stanley Kubrick does in hmm. terms of character and dialogue. The script and the characters are not unlike you would get in a Stanley Kubrick film, but hmm. the production is so unlike a Stanley Kubrick film. Hmm. It doesn't, to me, look or feel like a Stanley Kubrick movie, and I think it's the least representative. I don't really consider it a Stanley Kubrick film, to be honest. And yeah, you called your dog Spartacus and not Barry. Well, that's because we were naming him <laughs> after the 
true person rather uh, than the character as uh, played right. by Kirk Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it was me that named that dog, actually. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. So there's a, you know, there's a little piece of trivia about Spartacus. Do you know what we haven't mentioned? Lolita. I'm just uh, looking at the screen now. You've got them up on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another piece of trivia, uh, not trivia, a myth yeah. about Stanley Kubrick, since we seem to be doing a myth-busting mm-hmm. episode, is that <clears throat> he was like this loner who shut himself away in this house, was a complete recluse, mm-hmm. all these kinds of things. Couldn't work with people. Everybody he hated, everybody he worked with hated him afterwards. Mm. And that's patently not true because there's only one Stanley Kubrick film that does not feature actors that either had worked with him before or would go on to work with him again. Mm. Actually, quick quiz. Where's my cheat sheet? Right, you've got the names of all the films on the front of there. Quick yep. quiz for you, Mark. Which okay. of all those films do you think is the one that does not feature actors that haven't been in another Stanley Kubrick film? I'm guessing it's going to be Eyes Wide Shut because he wouldn't have worked with Tom Cruise. No, and... there is an actor in Eyes Wide Shut who's oh, worked okay. on a Stanley Kubrick film before. Oh, blimey. Um, well, seeing as we're talking about Lolita, is it Lolita? No, the only film that Stanley Kubrick ever made that did not feature actors that had not been in or would not go on to be in another of his films was um, Full Metal Jacket. Okay. Just a little tiny piece of trivia for you there. (laughs) But it'd be interesting now for people who are listening who like Stanley Kubrick, and I assume there'll be quite a few, might not perhaps realise some of these actors who've been in more than one of these films, including Mika from Rent-A-Ghost. What? Yeah, he was in, I think, two of Stanley Kubrick's films. Well, he's not Mr. just Mika. Mika from Rent-A-Ghost. No, but you know what I'm saying. He's in Doctor Who. I do believe. I could be confusing myself there because it's been a long time since I... But I was going to go on to another piece of trivia about Lolita, wasn't I? Go on. About his sort of reclusiveness and about mm-hmm. his attention to detail and his perfectionism and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. All these myths about Stanley Kubrick most of which are patently untrue. Mm. He was a really happy family guy mm-hmm. who didn't particularly like to fly, so stayed in England, Yeah, who uh, it's famously said that he, wouldn't, he was driven everywhere mm. and he famously, apparently, would not allow his driver to go over 30 miles an hour, which people saw as another one of Stanley Kubrick's obsessive idiosyncrasies that just showed what an eccentric lunatic he was. But actually, the truth of the matter is, he got driven everywhere because he was usually working. He'd either mm-hmm. be on the phone or he'd have his typewriter or he'd be typing stuff up. Yeah. And the fact is, if you're driving at 30 miles an hour and you're typing or on the phone, mm. you can type or talk on the phone. Whereas if your driver's going at 60 miles an hour, patently you can't. Mm. So the reason Stanley Kubrick got his drivers to drive slow was so that he could work while yeah. he was going somewhere. It's, <laughs> you know, when you look at the real, yeah. the truth of the situation... It's actually pretty mundane. <laughs> Whereas if you look at the myth, it's pretty damn stupid. Yeah, <clears throat> true, true. But Lolita, there is one scene in Lolita that absolutely and utterly punctures a gaping hole through all these myths. Mm. Something that a perfectionist who was obsessive about every tiny little detail who was a recluse, who would never wanted to be seen on screen, mm-hmm. on all this kind of stuff. There's a scene in Lita, a really, really pivotal scene mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, 
which is one of Stanley Kubrick's signature two minutes from a single camera shot. And for the entire scene, a, <clears throat> a dialogue between three characters where they're all standing absolutely still, just talking, just imparting with huge swathes of irony some really important information about the characters before you get to the very end of the film. Mm -hmm. And throughout the entire scene, Stanley Kubrick's shadow, as lit from the studio light behind <laughs> him, is standing, or is on the floor, the shadow right, on the floor, in between these three characters, while he smokes a cigarette or something and gives instructions to the cameraman with his arms waving mm. this way and that every now and again. Uh, you can tell it's Stanley Kubrick by the way he's standing, if you know what yeah. Kubrick's posture is. It's Stanley Kubrick. And there he is, you know, as, as bold as brass, in a shadow, puncturing the fourth wall of a really important scene at the end of a leader. Obviously, they've probably done that six or seven times and that was the best take. Well, it's just, he knew it was there. Mm. There's no way on earth he would have committed that shot to celluloid. Mm. I mean, he knew that was there when he was filming it. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can miss it. I mean, it's one of those things. It's a black and white film, and I suppose if you're really wrapped up in the film, you could pro possibly, possibly mm. not notice it. But as soon as you know it's there... You can't help but see it. Yeah, and it's like so obvious. It takes up like a third of the screen. Mm -hmm. I don't. I fail to see how you could miss it. There's no way he could have missed it, and certainly not in the edit. And if he'd have been that much of a perfectionist, he would have got those actors back together and reshot that scene. He knew it was there. He probably thought it was absolutely hilarious. Because, like I say, Stanley Kubrick had that kind of a sense of humour. For someone who was quite a visual director, do you have a favourite moment from a Kubrick film? that <clears throat> you, oh, think do you know what? People do this, don't they? Favourite shot from... Mm -hmm. Uh, 2001 in particular people will say oh the shot went such and such mm -hmm. no I don't think I do really I would say one of my favourite sequences well uh, I'll go back to the two films I was talking about mm -hmm. that very last scene at the end of Pass of Glory yeah. that has nothing to do with the film but mm -hmm. turns the entire film on its head that is a beautiful 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 scene mm -hmm. and will probably make you cry and there's not many moments in Stanley Kubrick films that'll make you cry, but that probably will. Mm -hmm. Certainly if you're in the right frame of mind when you watch it. Yeah. And in Barry Lyndon, during the rise of Barry Lyndon, before mm -hmm. the fall of Barry Lyndon, there's a short sequence where he... Uh, I don't want to give away anything of the plot, but he's wandered off on his own. Mm -hmm. And he's wandering through strange countryside in foreign countries that he's never been before on mainland Europe mm -hmm. and he just comes across this girl in a house in the middle of nowhere whose husband's gone off to war and he just spends a night with her and there's nothing lurid or mm -hmm. about it but the music that Kubrick chooses to go with that scene and you don't, you don't see what happens with them, right. really. You just see them meeting, and it's mm -hmm. all told in voiceover. Yeah. Hardly any dialogue. There is a couple of lines of dialogue, but mm -hmm. most of it's in voiceover. But between the Michael Horden voiceover, the performances of the two actors, mm -hmm. the music that Kubrick's chosen to score it with, because this is post-2001, so he's done mm -hmm. an all-classical score again, yeah. and the cinematography, which is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
that scene is just absolutely lovely. And even more so when you know what happens throughout the rest of the film. Right. Because there's some really nasty and really, really dark stuff in that film. Mm. And you see this beautiful, lovely little scene. It's about a minute to two minutes long. (laughs) And when you know what else happens, it's just so poignant. Yeah. It's... Barry Lyndon, if if you're listening to this and you've never seen Barry Lyndon, seek it out. One of the best experiences you'll ever have with a movie. It's going to have to go on our love film list then, I think. I think so. A full metal jacket. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Mickey Mouse. Honestly, that piece of music never felt the same again after that movie. Well... Obviously, Alexi Sale used it as well for Alexi Sale stuff, so that's... Did he? Yeah. Oh, before or after? After. Oh, well. I think. It might have been before. Maybe that's where Stanley Kubrick got the idea, but no, I shouldn't I think, think it was so. After. And I wonder what it cost him to license, because I would have thought he must have had to. Mm. But I tell you what, that scene at the end of Full Metal Jacket mm. works in the same way as that scene at the end of Passive Glory, although it's entirely different, and the result mm. of it is entirely different, but the fact that it that it makes you readdress everything that's happened before in the film yeah. in a really subtle way because mm-hmm. it doesn't comment on it. It, it. it kind of does comment on it, but it doesn't comment on it in the way you think it does. Mm. And it makes you rethink it all. And that kind of that's how Passive Glory ends as well. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's like a little Stanley Kubrick thing. So during the course of this week, apart from jenning up on... Stanley Kubrick. Which I haven't done. <laughs> As you can probably tell, my memory's a bit woolly. It's probably been a few, about five years since I last watched any of these films. What have you been enjoying recently that you could recommend to our listeners? You know what I've been enjoying. I'll tell you what I'm enjoying now is Endeavour. Mm. Okay, yeah. TV was, series? Yeah. Obviously, I was a big fan of Morse. Mm-hmm. And obviously also, well, not obviously, but being a big fan of Morse, I'm also a big fan of Lewis. Mm. But Lewis... <coughs> Much as I liked it, Lewis was slightly thinner than Morse. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of density about Morse and a kind of opacity about the, or opacity, opacity, about the plotting. I never, I could never work it out in mm-hmm. Morse who, who was going to be, and yet it was always entirely logical. Yeah. But there was always so much subtext and so much character going mm. on. Whereas in Lewis, by about halfway through each episode, I pretty much knew who'd done it. Yeah. But Endeavour is going... With Endeavour, I am generally guessing, but not as soon as I would with Lewis. Right. And probably only because by now I know the form. You know, the tropes and stuff. Yeah. Endeavour's much more going back to the feel of Morse than Lewis mm. really did. Which would make sense. Well, yeah, but you wouldn't expect it because I think a lot of the people who work on Endeavour are people who worked on Lewis. Mm. In fact, the head writer is Russell Lewis, by a strange coincidence, who was the head writer on Lewis, Mm -hmm. or one of the head writers. So uh, you wouldn't think it would be that much different. And I was when they did the pilot last year, I was expecting it just to be Lewis in the 1960s sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's... I'm not denigrating Lewis in any way, shape or no. form, because I love Lewis, but Endeavour is a world apart, much, mm-hmm. much superior. But you know, the thing I have enjoyed the most uh, recently has been Broadchurch. By Chris Chibnall. Indeed. 
Now, I've only seen the first two episodes. <laughs> oh, well. So I've still got a little way to go yet. Oh, well, in that case, without spoiling it for you, the last episode was sublime. Mm. But not necessarily for the reason you think it will be. Okay. And now I don't really want to say, because I will <laughs> kind of spoil something by saying... <coughs> but, well, it's ITV, and you know ITV is split into four segments with adverts in between. Mm-hmm. Something happens in the first segment of the last episode mm-hmm. that leads to something in the second segment of the last episode okay. that's entirely not the way these things are done mm-hmm. that leads to a third and fourth segment that you could entirely not predict mm. having gone into the drama at the start. Okay. I'm not saying you wouldn't predict what happens, mm. but the way it's written yeah. and the way it's... <clears throat> broadcast the way it's transmitted the way it's shown the the last episode is formatted mm. entirely differently from... it's been getting a lot of praise over here which oh, yeah. uh, for people perhaps listening in the states or further afield um, ITV generally gets looked down upon I suppose really doesn't it well they in tend to do they tend to <clears throat> with their middle and lowbrow programming mm. they tend to kind of they lowest to, common denominator. Really. It is, but it's not. Ju- it's not just lowest common denominator. They have to sell themselves because mm. they have to sell advertising. It's a commercial space enterprise, and, yeah. Yeah, but so they need to rack up the numbers. So mm. the middle and lowbrow material tends to just be for as wide a demographic as possible. Mm. Whereas some of their highbrow stuff is really, really good. Mm. Things like Foils War and Endeavour. Yeah. <clears throat> but. Even so, they tend to be quite easy to get into. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, you, only, you don't even really need to like detective dramas to be able to follow yeah. and become involved in a detective drama. Mm-hmm. But Broadchurch was something entirely differently. Mm-hmm. It told a two-hour story across eight hours of television. Yeah. But in doing so, it managed to say so much more about the characters than Mm. you ordinarily would but not just that it's the tone of it and the speed of it and the pace of it is that down to the writing or direction or a bit of both a bit of both because when he wrote it he wrote Mm. you know 50 minute episodes for Mm -hmm. a 50 minute slot but he obviously wrote into the script that that it would play out at this pace and they do have a pretty decent cast in that program as well yeah yeah but the, the thing about it is, it's not the cast, and it's not the writing, and it's not the music, and it's not the cinematography, and it's not the direction. It's a combination mm-hmm. of all five of those things that come together to create a tone that is utterly, utterly unique mm-hmm. in television. I've never seen a television programme that felt remotely like Broadchurch did. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these... Um, there have been a few comparisons with the, the foreign language and things like that, yeah. Ones from Scandinavia, yeah. a show on BBC Four. Mm-hmm. I guess I've not seen a lot of that. Mm. And actually, the British language version with Kenneth Branagh. Ah, uh, yeah. Has slightly the same feel as mm-hmm. Broadchurch did. Yeah. But with Broadchurch, it's not just that, it's the speed. Mm-hmm. Half of the feel of it is the speed at which it moves. Yeah. You just often go off for like almost a minute of just a character walking on a clifftop with music. Mm-hmm. And to see that in an ITV drama is unheard of. Yeah, I'm just really glad that it's been such a success because it's kind of 
proves to people that you don't always have to go buy the book and buy the numbers mm. Mm. to have a great success. Yeah. And it's become like a proper water cooler thing as well. It's nice to see them take a bit of a risk as well. Mm. On yeah. Well, he just wrote this thing. And I think he told me that it just happened to be luck that kind of a spot came up and they gave mm. it to him. Because you write for Starburst and you get to Interview speak people to like people yeah. like Chris Chibnall on a fairly mm. regular basis. But the <clears throat> weird thing is, the other day I, on Twitter, I think it was just before the last episode went out, mm. maybe the day before, and the kid who plays the one who dies right at the very start, yeah. he was on there. And I think Chris Chibnall retweeted him, so he mm. came into my timeline. Yeah. And he said, and it just like a five-word tweet or something, and all it was was, so who did shoot JR? <laughs> so I came in with, hang on, I've not been shot. <laughs> but at the end, of, so we had a short conversation, but it transpired that his dad, this kid's dad, because mm-hmm. I don't know how old this kid is, but, yeah. you know, young teens, if not mm-hmm. preteens. Uh, obviously, his dad had said to him that this whole fuss about Broadchurch reminded mm. him of Dallas and who yeah, shot JR. Yeah. And it has been. It's properly mm. been a thing that people have been talking about. Mm-hmm. And Twitter's. Just yeah. been mad on. I've had to avoid comments. my timeline uh, when it's being shown because we're kind of behind on that. I don't want to Spoiler find out what's going because there's pretty much a running commentary on it. So um, yeah. that tends to be a good indicator that people are enjoying it. Oh yeah, it's. Um, I think it's had something like number one drama above even things like Lewis and mm-hmm. Endeavor in the viewing figures. Yeah. I think it's just uh, just stunned everybody really. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody was expecting it to be like it was. I mean, they put David Tennant in it. And, you know, you stick David Tennant in something and you're going to get a certain amount of viewers just because it's David Tennant. Yeah. And I think they they stuck it on in a Monday night slot, 9 till 10, mm-hmm. which is a good slot. ITV, you know, probably after it was made and they could see it, I, they knew kind of what they were getting. But once they could actually see it, they probably thought to themselves, this is probably better than we expected. Mm. Uh, you pair him up with someone like Olivia Coleman as well, and that's they got a really good chemistry going. There. She's so unexpected because she's so much known for comedy, really. Oh, I don't know. If you have you heard of a film called Tyrannosaur? Vaguely, mm, I think she's in that, and that's but the thing dark, that most people yeah. know her. Yeah, for certainly in the UK, she's known Peter. for yeah. So you kind of don't expect the performance you get from mm. her. Because she is easily the best thing in it from start yeah, to finish. Yeah. Uh, oh, in the last episode, she, in fact, several of the actors, some of them you don't even expect it from, mm-hmm. in the very last episode have some unbelievable scenes and sequences mm-hmm. that are just extraordinarily acted. It's uh, quite an astonishing piece of television. And I'm just glad it even got made, to be honest. Because it was so unexpected. I wonder whether it'll find its way further afield. Outside of the UK. It's been so successful over Mm. here, you'd hope that um, it would, because other people must be looking at the success it's had. Mm. If they don't see how successful it's been over here Mm. and try and replicate that success elsewhere. You'd be surprised. Yeah. So thanks very much, JR, for coming back on again. And uh, hopefully it won't be another... 12 months before you come back next time well I'd kind of like to come back and do one about Inspector Morse if your listeners will have me get them to email in oh, sounds like a plan 
Inspector Morse. And we'll probably also cover Lewis and Endeavour as well. So well, that would make sense. Do you think your listeners would like to have a podcast about Inspector Morse? Because it's not that nerdy. Well, we cover a fairly wide range of different subjects. Yeah, I suppose you do. Okay, well, if they want it, I'll come <laughs> back. 18 months' time, it's a date, and do the Inspector Morse podcast. Oh, thanks very much. You're welcome. If I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Red rum, red rum, red rum.